Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guests today are Seshu Foster and Arturo Ernesto Romo. Arturo is an artist. Uh, his artwork is mostly collaborative mixed media, but he also draws and has been exhibited internationally. Seshu is a Believer Book Award and Firecracker Award winning author. He's the author of Atomic Aztecs, World Ball Notebook, and City of the Future. Their newest book is Iladado, a history of the East Los Angeles dirigible air transport lines which is published by our friends at City Lights Books. Seshu, Arturo, welcome to the program. Thank you, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. Absolutely, it's an honor to have you here. And um, I was a bookseller in another part of the country, in San Francisco, uh, when your previous novel, Seshu, Atomic Aztecs was released. And when it won the Believer Book Award. Uh, that book blew my mind. It was a bit of a revelation. And Seshu, when I met your publisher at the ABA's Winter Institute in Baltimore last year and saw this novel was coming out, I was so excited. Uh, it's the one book, um, Seshu and Arturo, that I left the Winter Institute looking forward to the most. Um, what I want to ask is, what is the difference, Seshu, in your approach to writing poetry and writing prose? This is the first prose novel you've put out in 15 years. And what is the process like working with Arturo um, to have this be a mixed media novel? Well, every, uh, pretty much every book of mine is defined by its composition process um, in that um, there's obvious... Uh, what confluences or commonalities between prose, prose poetry, and poetry. Um, the distinction, I guess, for me is um, that narrative is defined sort of socially as through the conventions of dialogue and description and plot and the other elements that people expect when they pick up a book and they see quotation marks around the dialogue and so on and so forth, that, that all of that is, is sort of socially defined um, as, as narrative, as opposed to, um, as opposed to poetry where it's expected that, um, that the writer can uh, be more experimental with those kinds of elements like, uh, you know, E. Cummings, all of, you know, E. Cummings was still a very popular poet uh, and, and the whole gamut of avant-garde uh, poets from Gertrude Stein to you name them um, are experimenting with all of those elements. Um, and, and so there's a, a kind of spectrum there. Uh, and so for me, it depends on the composition. Um, and I am composing narrative to be sort of conventional in, in, in its use of dialogue and description and, and everything to meet the expectations of readers like that. Um, the, in terms of collaboration with Arturo and myself, 
that was that was a defining feature of the composition of this this book. Um, the the inception of this book, Arturo can speak to it uh, more from his own point of view. But from my point of view, it came about through our collaboration on researching historical sites in in East Los Angeles uh, for a website called the ELA Guide, um, in which we uh, traveled many dozens or hundreds of miles driving around the streets of East LA, sometimes interviewing people about historical sites um, and, uh, and doing uh, as big a survey of the birrerias and taco trucks as, as I could fit in there. And, and make Arturo stand still so I could check out the tacos. Very good. Um, and then as I ask questions, either of you can feel free to jump in or answer, or both of you can answer as you like. Uh, how did you find your way to City Lights books? And what is it like having them for a publisher? I know uh, firsthand that they are champions of your work. I, I found City Lights books as a teenager. Um, uh, in the in the seventies, when my my brother and I were sort of hitchhiking up and down uh, California, he handed me Howl by Allen Ginsberg and changed my idea of writing forever. Um, you know, be previous to uh, previous to reading Howl, you know, I I read. Jules Verne or Conan Doyle or whoever I was handed in in high school. Um, and I was a big reader in high school, but um, I had no real idea about contemporary writing by living writers. And uh, yeah, so that the whole City Lights catalog kind of opened my mind to um, totally new possibilities of writing. Fantastic. Um, let's dive into the novel now. This novel is presented as an actual history of a fictional company. Can you tell our listeners who this fictional company is and what they're doing? Um, well, I think like, like Seshu was saying, the, the novel started, <clears throat> or our collaboration on the novel started with us um, working on this on this guide called ELA Guide, uh, and it was a website where we were trying to um, see if we could explore a territory as artists um, through writing an image and the interrelation between the two. Um, to I mean, I think, think it was ambitious. We were trying to um, see if we could attempt to fully capture um, a location. The history of the location, the the people's history of the place, and also the imaginative landscape of the place through the collective imagination of the people who live there, um, their their dreams and political aspirations. Um, you know, the time we were making the the uh, website, East LA was usually hidden from from a larger conception of LA. It was completely left off of the map. In fact. Many times in a guidebook to LA, like a tourist guidebook, the part of it, it, they would show a map of LA, and the part that covered East LA was actually literally hidden by the key of the map. And so, um, 
And so part of our goal was to explore, to be artists in a place, to be artists rooted in a place. Um, and so, and so the, the, I think for me, the book came out of that type of collaboration um, between, between me and Seshu, between image and text, the interrelation between the two, but also as artists who interact specifically with place, like with a lived in place. Yeah, and um, I'm going to build off of that answer for a moment, and then I want to return to the the company in this book. But this book was meant to be paired uh, with a series of art installations, and I'm holding this book in our hands. Our listeners, of course, can't see it, but there's so much beautiful art in this book. It's such an outstanding, just like object to hold in your hands. Um, as far as the installations go, were the installations able to happen? Did COVID-19 throw a wrench in these plans? I'm kind of picturing these huge interactive happenings uh, going on around this book. Can you tell us more about that plan? Well, I think it ties into the question of who, what the company is. And mm -hmm. so we were, I think we were operating on a number of registers, like uh, me and Seshu, in terms of writing this book. I think originally the concept of the book was to create create a story from a place. Um, but we also wanted the book to be as collaborative as possible. So initially we had a, a, um, a dirigible company board that was made of writers and journalists and artists. Um, and we, I think Sasha, we attempted to have a few meetings, um, <laughs> but as, but as in the book, the, the company kind of like, had its fits and starts and sputtered and stopped and restarted again. And so there are like these parallel tracks of the actual project of making the book that are reflected. That process is actually reflected in the book itself through the narrative of a company that has its fits and starts across space and time. So one of the features of, of the company that's profiled in the book is um, the fact that it exists in multiple time periods that correspond to social movements in East LA. And I don't know, maybe Seshu can speak more to this, but, um, but I think the, the company itself is a stand-in or metaphor for the aspirations of people um, to rise out of oppression and to supersede their circumstances. Um, and, and the book is kind of a tribute to that spirit um, of resilience that pe that oppressed people have in that it might look like it disappeared. It might look like there was a dirigible company and a movement towards light of an air transport that was liberatory in the 30s, and it goes underground, it disappears only to rise again in the 60s, only to rise again in the 90s. So it's a tribute to that resilience of community. Perhaps I could read a short section of... Yeah, absolutely. Of the, of the book. Um, so this relates to what Arturo was just talking about. Um, I mean, both Arturo and I um, are influenced by the Chicano movement of the of the 1970s. That's you know that's when I was coming of age. It was uh, in the you know the defining political movement of our uh, of East LA during that during that time and. Uh, and has it had its rise and fall? Um, also produced uh, neighborhood artists that, um, like Osco, which was comprised by uh, 
Willie Erron and uh, Harry Gamboa and Pepsi Valdez and Gronk, um, who also uh, inspired our our work in in their community related practices. And um, as Arturo and I did more research uh, in in the histories and sort of um, hidden histories of East LA. Uh, this is this is also a, a part of the history of of LA that I that we came across, um, and so uh, let me let me look at a section from page page starting on page one hundred. Um, what about Bessie Coleman? She was the first American to get an international pilot's license, which she got in France because they refused to teach her how to fly in America. And the first African-American woman to get a pilot's license back in 1921. But she could only make a living doing dangerous stunt flying and it killed her. In 1926, she lost control of her plane. It spun out and threw her at 2000 feet above the ground and there she died. She was 34. Of course, she was the inspiration for the Bessie Coleman Aero Club. Now this is basic history of the skies of Los Angeles. So you're supposed to know this already. The Bessie Coleman Aero Club was founded in 1929 by William Powell here in LA, where Powell learned to fly because the Los Angeles Warren School of Aeronautics was the only place in the country where he was allowed because he was black to take flying lessons. Powell, who owned a chain of five gas stations, became a licensed pilot, navigator, and aeronautical engineer. He started an airplane company and the Bessie Coleman Aero Club to lay the foundation for a new future for African-Americans. In his book, Black Wings, Powell wrote, there is a better job and a better future in aviation for Negroes than in any other industry. And the reason is this aviation is just beginning its period of growth. And if we get into it now, while it is still uncrowded, we can grow as aviation grows. Powell had a major plan and this was his plan. Negro leaders, why do you sleep? Black men and black women, arouse your imaginations. Act before it is too late. Do not let the aviation industry become completely monopolized by other races who will give you and me only the most menial jobs. Get into aviation now while we have a chance to get black airplane manufacturers, black airplane distributors, owners of black transport lines, and thousands of other black boys and black girls profitably employed in a great paying industry. That was Powell, Powell's plan. It would eliminate continually begging the white people for jobs. He started a black aviation newsletter where he offered scholarships to black students, male and females alike, who wanted to learn to fly. Um, and so this was something that we found out while working on the book. This was not like a, uh, a preconception that we started with. Uh, we kind of started with the figure of the dirigible as an obvious failure of 
technological hopes of the 20th century. But it turned out that that actual people in Los Angeles had had that uh, vision and dream, you know, before we imagined it. And it turns out that, uh, for example, one of Powell's closest associates that he um, named James Banning, who was the first um, African-American commercial pilot in the United States, uh, and, a, and an associate of Powell's who flew together across country um, as the first two black pilots to make a cross-country flight is buried in East Los Angeles because he died also doing stunt, uh, stunt flying um, because there was no airline industry during that time. So that was a common occupation or a common way for pilots to make money in the, in the 20s. And, uh, and they had a, together they had a, um, an aero show of stunt flyers, of, of black uh, stunt flyers in, on the, in the San Gabriel Valley on the east side of LA um, that drew tens of thousands of, of people. Um, and this was something that we just discovered kind of by accident in our, in our research in, into the histories of, of uh, East LA, where we were positing uh, kind of the dirigible as a metaphor for the, um, for the failed hopes of the 20th century. Um, it turns out that it was just as historical as it was imaginary. Yeah, um, after the break, I wanna elaborate on a couple of the concepts that both of you just mentioned. But before uh, we take a short break, I do wanna ask about the time frame of this book because um, Arturo, you just mentioned, you know, the 60s and 70s. Seshu, you just mentioned 1921. Um, there are also mentions in this book about the riots of 2021. Um, so what is the time period that this book takes place in? Uh, well, well, it takes place across multiple times through multiple iterations. Um, there's like a framing device in the novel that... Um, where there's two figures that are actually responsible for the research of all these eras. And so um, there's an extensive appendix section in the book that gives documentation and proof of the, uh, of the research around these, these uh, different eras that then feed into the narrative of, of, of the book itself. Um, I, you know, I don't know if it's too clear what specific eras are being talked about. There's like, you know, kind of oh, like glancing references to the 1930s. I think it's more tonal than anything. Uh, with the visuals, I was attempting to, you know, draw draw references to, um, you know, Art Deco or Art Nouveau, 1930s charcoal drawings, um, uh, drawings from a socialist um, illustrator named Hugo, Hugo Gellert. Um, and through these but I don't think we're really, I don't, I don't know, Seshu, but for me, I wasn't thinking of particular dates. I was thinking more of like these particular eras and the aspirations that they represented. Kind of like Seshu is saying, like the dirigible represented this, this monumental effort to, you know, lighter than air transport that could revolutionize the way that the world, that the world interacted. Um, 
and almost with like a utopian vision for like a peaceful global society. And then, you know, of course, the the great thing about the dirigible is also that we know we have an image of the Hindenburg too, so we know how it ended up. Um, but in the book, what happens is the Hindenburg disaster kind of reverses itself, and there's just all these iterations of trying and trying and trying again. Um, yeah, and I believe that it's towards the beginning of the book, there is a there is a future dirigible company also. Um, so yeah, I, I think the, the references to time are more references to cultures and aspirations and dreams um, of those time periods. And they do blend into each other um, in anachronistic ways throughout the book. There's a slippage. Yeah. There's a slippage because, I mean, what, what we're fictionally trying to imply is, is that the hopes and expectations of, of people don't die during their time. They don't stop during their time, but are resurrected in, in various ways. I mean, there's a, there's a book um, by an Italian, uh, Italian historian about the history of the Italian Communist Party called The Tailor of Ohm. And the title comes from a poem by Bertolt Brecht, where, um, where the tailor of Ohm uh, attempts to create a flying uh, apparatus, and he attempts to fly off the top of a building, and of course just crashes and dies. And uh, everyone, uh, and this takes place uh, sometime during uh, some past century, where everyone is making fun of him for trying to fly. Um, and, uh, and so Breck's point in the, in the poem is, is that, um, well, obviously, uh, the Taylor of Ohm had this idea um, and that it seemed uh, utopian at the time, but that obviously people fly. Mm. Right on. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Listeners, we are going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Arturo Romo and Seshu Foster. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Seshu Foster and Arturo Romo, authors of Ila Dado, a history of the East Los Angeles dirigible air transport lines, which is published by our friends at City Lights. I want to ask you about the opening to this book. We open on a section called Sky City, and we are dropped into an interview taking place for a pirate radio broadcast. I encountered a lot of folks taking part in and interested in pirate radio when I lived in California, but not so much here in North Carolina. Can you tell our listeners about pirate radio and why this particular medium is important to the message inherent in this book? 
Well, Pirate Radio uh, obviously is a kind of what is what would you call it? it would, uh, like a kind of guerrilla operation, um, and uh, maybe Arturo can speak to this uh, in a bit. But um, but as sort of researchers in the um, in the history of East LA, we came up across, you know, just endless examples of voluntary uh, projects, experiments by people like William Powell and Black Wings to try and um, to try and resurrect hope among the communities of Los Angeles, uh, to try and um, revolutionize their situation in some kind of way. Uh, Pirate Radio for its adherence represents that kind of um, aspiration, I think, uh, and it's just one of, of many. Well, one of my entry points into the, the, the various iterations of the dirigible company and then like what I imagine in my mind or visualize in my mind is like the dirigible company being like a parallel to social movements in, in East Los and East LA. Um, Maybe you can talk about your your Nella, your Northeast LA um, activity. Sure. Yeah. 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 So so the so the the like my my entry into um, into pirate radio was through the '90s. There was a program called Radio Clandestino, and that was a, a micro FM pirate radio station that was political in nature. And you know, back in those days. You know, I got my political education through zines. This is pre-internet through um, through zines and through these radio programs or tapes that were circulated. And it was there's like a social fabric and connection that's created in movements uh, through the the interchange of information through um, through exchanging artwork and listening to these radio stations that were obviously like not ever going to be sanctioned by any mainstream publisher or broadcaster. Um, and so the, the soundtrack to the book is also the pirate radio soundtrack, you know, these late night guerrilla transmissions that are going in and out. And uh, I think that's another tone that we're trying to achieve with the book. Like in that, in that uh, chapter, there's a lot of static, a lot of coming in and out. Um, and that was part of the, just the experience of, of organizing um, pre-internet. Yeah, and to flesh this question out just a little bit, um, there's a quote that I want to read, and that quote is, just like everything else in America, media for the people is winking out in the darkness, end quote. Um, and I'm hoping maybe you can talk about this quote a little bit, as this is something I've been thinking about for a long time, and specifically since the advent of Fox News here in the United States of America, when other media networks started leaning harder to the left or the right and all of these networks and conglomerations being corporate news networks and corporate news conglomerations and not necessarily news uh, of and for the people. Um, so returning to this quote, um, just like everything else in America, media for the people is winking out in the darkness. Uh, can you talk about this as it relates to pirate radio and the rest of your novel? I think that the... Well, the dirigible is is like a, a dream of infrastructure that serves people. Like the, in the book, the 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 
the protagonists or characters in the book aren't trying to create a dirigible company that will, you know, serve serve uh, like a wealthy few. They're trying to create like a mass mass transportation system that will serve the people. And I think pirate radio served the same function. It was like radio for the for the people. So they're both kind of like these airborne technologies that are meant to forge connections between people, uh, spatially in the case of the dirigible, uh, connecting people across across uh, across the world, and then also uh, with the radio, connecting people uh, through information in both of these aerial and you know in the book it's it's all fraught. There's static in the air. And there's like disasters with the dirigible. So, and in LA, we have a Pacifica radio station. The Pacifica was the first member-supported um, radio station that was non-corporate. And so we have uh, KPFK in LA. There's KPFA in 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 Berkeley. Um, and uh, I have to say that that some of our book makes fun of of the leftist troubles of running their institutions. You know, it's a sort of open secret that KPFA uh, and KPFK are continually befraught by uh, infighting, by financial um, disaster. They're always on the verge of of going under, of bankruptcy. Um, and so on and so forth, and and so it alludes it alludes partly to that that sort of history on the left of never getting your act together, or of always you know, uh, always having these these family infights. Uh, yeah, great. Thank you so much, uh, gentlemen. I'm gonna. Um jump to another topic now i want to ask you about the chickens uh there are these long mysterious buildings sort of reminiscent of what you might see in uh, area 51 if you've ever been by there or, or driven through that area and there's all sorts of conjecturing about what happens in these buildings and it turns out that the buildings house chickens uh and then you sort of describe how chickens are killed in a scene that features traffic cones um how do chickens figure into this story and why are they housed in such mysterious looking buildings hmm okay so my my cousin is a is a chicken farmer his name is uh, reyes reyes flores i'm gonna give him a shout out right now um and so the chicken man the most popular uh, popular presenter on urban farming that uh, we we hosted in the recent rupture radio hour pre performance presentations at UCLA and MoCA and different different uh, galleries and venues. Nice. Yeah, part of the part of our our part of the book actually part of the project of the book was a series of performances called the recent rupture radio hour, which were which were live performances in the in the guise of a radio show, uh, in the guise of a pirate radio show, underground late night radio show, um, coming from an alternative universe. Um, and we would invite artists and community members. We had Rosalio Munoz on, who was an activist, who is an activist um, uh, involved in the Chicano movement. Um, and we would always have my cousin on because he was the most popular. Like he drew in all our all our audience, people wanted to hear stuff like, uh, does the color of the chicken affect the taste of the egg? Does the, do chickens have personalities? And kind of absurd questions like that, but um, 
Uh, I helped him on the farm. I think uh, we both helped him in a slaughter uh, of, of chickens. And um, I think, I mean, Sesha, you can talk more to this. I know that my process of creating art is additive. So, so I'm always collecting things. Like if I'm slaughtering a chicken, it's going to make its way somehow into, into what I'm doing. Um, and I think, I think it was just part of, part of our, our goal in the book was to, to make it community-based and to make it place-based. And, and uh, Reyes is definitely like one of many uh, urban farmers, one of many people who has chickens and gardens in their front yard and working class East LA and Northeast LA. And I think that's probably one of the reasons it made it in the book, but there's a whole other, there's a whole other um, cross-pollination or cross-narrative about violence, eating meat, violence, industrial farming, um, the military, military-industrial complex, um, and just like American violence and American loneliness that the chicken narrative also serves to highlight. Great. Thank you so much. Um, finally, I want to ask the two of you about this section titled Kraken Attacks and Destroys L.A. Zeppelins. <laughs> in this section, there is a kraken. It attacks and a person who was injured in the attack is being interviewed only. Instead of talking about the kraken, the person begins to detail um, this class of laborers who do all of these jobs that no one pays attention to and that no one is willing to do and about how gnarly the work is and how the people doing these jobs are unseen. And after much detail, the interviewer is just like, yeah, but what about that kraken? Uh, dot, dot, dot. What is going on in this scene and why did you choose to frame this story about class invisibility with a kraken? Well, Obviously, uh, L.A. is the city of Hollywood, um, and growing up in L.A., and growing up especially in East L.A., um, where uh, sort of the industrial imagination is broadcast across the entire planet. So the entire planet um, has its imaginations sort of colonized by... Um, by uh, Walt Disney and Humphrey Bogart and uh, I don't know Angelina Jolie or you name it, um, you know uh, all the celebrity celebrity culture in general, the Academy Awards and and on and on and on. Um, when I was growing up, you know, after a while, I had to notice that um, that Chicanos are not allowed in uh, on TV. Uh, like there's no Chicano. TV shows. Well, I don't watch TV, but I think there are no Chicano TV shows um, that, um, uh, you know, if you look at uh, science fiction, Chicanos are not allowed in outer space. Um, and uh, there's something too real about, about Chicanos. They're, they introduce this dissonant element of realism that is not allowed in, in the Hollywood imagination. Um, and so, um, so that's what, that's what the Kraken kind of represents. The Kraken kind of represents, um, all of those paper mache Hollywood monsters that come out of the closet or descend from outer space or, um, or show up, uh, uh, out of the Hollywood imagination, but are obviously kind of, uh, 
constructs of, of some kind or another. Um, whereas actual, the actual people who, who do all the work, who serve all the food, who grow the food, who harvest the food, who bring us our food on a daily basis, who wash our dishes when we're done, um, who clean up after us and uh, sew our uh, clothes in the, in the garment factories downtown, um, who stock the shelves, who run the cash registers and so forth. All these people who have made our life possible um, are hidden behind a, like a kraken. Right, yeah. Such a fantastic and powerful chapter. Thank you so much, Seshu. And thank you, Arturo. And thank you for producing this book. Listeners, listen up. I haven't read anything like this book in a very long time, if ever. Uh, when I was at the ABA's Winter Institute again in February of 2020, I was there with James McBride and Rebecca Solnit, Eric Larson, so many wonderful authors who were telling me about the books they had just written that were to be released soon. And this book, uh, Illidato, is the book that I left the conference most excited about. It is everything I hoped it would be and more. I cannot wait for you to read it. You can purchase it from us at Quail Ridge Books and we will ship it to you for free and you will be supporting an independent bookstore that has been serving our community for 36 years. Seshu Arturo, thank you so much for joining me. Jason, thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you, Jason. Thanks for having us. Once again, I would like to thank Seshu Foster and Arturo Romo for joining me. Copies of Illidato, the history of the East Los Angeles dirigible air transport lines can be purchased at www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.